Hey everybody and welcome to Hip Hop Anonymous, the show that's not really much about hip hop at all, but more about history, conspiracy theories, philosophies, and I am still your host, Dean Martian. Okay, uh, so there was a bit of a delay in releasing this episode here for a while, but for a good reason. I made some upgrades here at HQ, and some of you may be able to even hear the change in audio quality. I've just upgraded from the, or to the, excuse me, Uhuru XM900 XLR condenser microphone set. So it's uh, not very expensive, but it sounds pretty damn good for 49 bucks. And for $49, it also comes with this boom arm, which you can see on video now, which is a new addition to the show, but I digress. Um, it also comes with this pop microphone or pop filter. Uh, and so I don't have to use this little desk stand mic anymore. I'm achieving this by also using the Zoom audio interface. And it handles all my audio routing, I guess is what you would call it. I can like plug in multiple microphones. I can have up to three guests here. If you're listening to this right now and you're thinking to yourself, God damn, I'd like to start my own podcast, but I just don't know what to do. You know, or maybe you already have a podcast and you want to like fix the audio quality in order to make it sound more professional. Well, to you, I'd have to say that's too goddamn bad because there's enough podcasts out here already and I don't need any more motherfucking competition. And I'm just kidding. No, <laughs> I'm not saying that. Of course, I'm not saying that. What I was going to say is if you like the way that this audio sounds, I've added an Amazon link to the exact equipment that you're hearing me through right now. And, um, you know, I've done the research on getting the best sound for your money so that you don't have to. And that's all for everybody. You know, those of you out there who feel like you do have something really important to talk about or share with the world. And now you can do that. One thing you might be saying is, how does a guy like Dean Martian end up slinging Amazon links? You know, Amazon's a company that is in part the antithesis of the things that I talk about here on the show. And the answer to that is pretty easy and shameful, if I have to admit it. Um, it's convenience and cost. When I first started recording audio, like a long time ago, if I wanted to upgrade and get some microphone instead of recording directly into my built-in computer uh, iMac mic, I'd have to go to Guitar Center and uh, various electronic stores to find devices that I needed. I do agree, Amazon is the devil. I know a lot, all about all the shit Jeff Bezos does and the things that Amazon employees go through, and it's awful. But when you're buying niche items like these, it's a lot better than driving all over town to spend lots of money, right? Or ordering it directly from the manufacturer and then waiting two weeks for it to arrive at your house or apartment or whatever. It's just... It's just a lot easier to buy it on Amazon. So I'm not suggesting or advocating necessarily that you guys get on Amazon, even though I'll get paid if you use my links. But if you want to just get the links to um, to see what the audio equipment is and then go find it elsewhere, I'm totally cool with that. Um, but if you are interested in getting it quick and getting it for a better price, you can click the link in the show description of this episode and you can visit deanxmartian.com or martianartsllc.com. takes you to the same place. And you can find the Amazon links there. And just one more housekeeping item up front before we like get into this episode. I put a, a lot of time into this show, right? The research, writing, recording, editing. It takes an enormous amount of time. 
I work full time already as a graphic designer at a large company for my day job. And in a like combination with that, I'm juggling a bunch of other projects. So finding the time and the energy to put into releasing an episode every single Monday, I'm to be honest, it's a little difficult for me. Like, and you know, I'm going to keep doing the show because I like talking and I like research and I like sharing these things, but on a weekly basis, it's just too much. So, um, I'm, gonna start releasing episodes on a bi-weekly basis now whoops push the wrong button i'm gonna put i'm gonna do that over again <laughs> i'm gonna keep doing the show but on a bi-weekly basis yeah i know i'm sorry but um until the show starts bringing in more revenue or allows me to leave my job i, I really just can't spare much more time and honestly the time that I do have now with the bi-weekly stuff, you can see that I've added video to the to the whole mix. So I want to start having time to edit the videos and get them posted. But with better narratives, uh, more research, more focus. Um, so that's that. There are two ways that we can speed up the process of the show getting better. And one is sponsorships. Um, if I gain more sponsorships, I can obviously do more with that sponsorship money. The other way is listener contributions, and that's something that you can do right now. And it doesn't cost you a dime if you don't want it to. You can follow or subscribe to this show on Spotify or wherever you're listening to this. And also, I've set up a donations account that I have not yet found uh, the, the button to or how I can present it to you on Spotify and all these other places. So in the meantime, just keep your eyes out for that if you do want to support the show in the future. Um, but again, like, subscribe to the show, share it with your friends, and that's enough of that. Let's just finish this second part of a uh, the second and final part to this two-part episode that I did about the history of Americas. And as I mentioned before in part one, but there's really no call to action. This is just a recap of the history of this mysterious continent without the baggage of Western imperialism kind of added to it. Um, so in a loose sort of way, these episodes, again, are meant to illustrate the world before we forgot our history, before we toppled over these, you know, Native American monuments and added these new statues that now we're trying to knock over and install a new way of thinking again. This episode's meant to illustrate a, a picture of the world that is the product of monument toppling let's keep talking about the world you know the world in america the world in other places prior to western imperialism or the rise of it all right let's get into it so a little over a hundred years prior to columbus's journey we have the story of another monarch it's much like don juan's kingdom uh, in portugal and King and Queen Ferdinand and Isabella's kingdoms in Spain that would appear much later. But this king, he's an African king, and he's restless. This king, he is named Abubakari II, and he rules over the Mali Empire in the year 1310. This next part I'm about to talk about is based on events in medieval Mali, based on Arab historical and travel documents, and also the oral tradition of Mali griots. So here's the story now. This morning, the king, he's in a somber mood. He enters the courtyard through a door in the corner, 
and he carries a large shining bow that is accustomed to Molly royalty. And though he's wearing the noble dress of a monarch, he looks disheveled. His golden skull cap was said to have been askew, and his clothes were wrinkled. So I, I think it's funny right there that this dude's like, niggas gotta shine all throughout history. Like, this dude's got a gold skull cap on. This king, he walks into his royal court, he takes a seat. And shortly afterwards, he's met by some servants and military advisors. And they tell him some unfortunate news. They have to let him know that the attempted capture of this city called Janae, probably not going to happen. This city is about 300 miles southwest of the city of Timbuktu. Janae, it was a beautiful city, characterized by distinguished waterways, unique architecture, advanced doctors and surgeons. It was even said that there were surgeons that could perform the removal of cataracts. It was a coveted location for anybody who was a conqueror, but trying to take this city was really wearing them out. The king, he was obviously heartbroken to hear this news, but in truth, maybe he was even a little bit relieved because he was really tired of this war that he was fighting. And honestly, it's kind of counterintuitive to like try to siege a city that you you want because it's nice. It's like you're probably shooting arrows and cannonballs, blowing shit up, lighting stuff on fire. You know, like it's not going to be that nice after you get through fucking taking it over, but okay. Anyways, uh, so deep down, this king, uh, Abu, let's call him Abu, because I don't want to say his name the entire time. It's really long. Um, This king, Abu, he really had the heart of an adventurer. And ever since he was a young boy, he had been fascinated by the sea. During this time, though, men were horrified about going out on the water, particularly the Atlantic Ocean, which is like north of where this guy is at the time. Northwest, actually. And the Arabs referred to this ocean as the green sea of darkness very few people have been known to enter it and even fewer people were known to uh, enter it in return it had a really powerful current that some compared to the hand of god as because it would quickly pull you away from land if you ventured too far and during this time some people thought that this sea was um, the edge of the world the atlantic ocean i mean and they believed that if somebody got caught in the current that they would inevitably end up in a black hole. But there was other rumors too. Some diplomats from the Moroccan court said that that type of thinking was nonsense. The round or gourd-shaped world was an idea or a concept that was becoming a little more popular, but mostly in North Africa, from the Moors, who were conquering shit since the late 600s. Berbers, Arabs, etc., um... Those are all names for Moors. These Moors were considered romantics and insane. They were lunatics. These conservative thoughts that kept the world kind of in a state of being flat and mysterious and unknown, this this was a thought that came from the Muslims, mostly. King Abu, he had worn the robes of a Muslim. Now, why would ideas from a Muslim be even influencing the thoughts of a North African Mali king? But he was not a Muslim. In fact, he actually wanted really like a very little to do with Muslim culture. He only tolerated it because of the exchange of wealth that some Africans had with Arabs at this time. The Arabs were so rich in gold that they had minted the first Roman coins for the Europeans. Fun fact. Now that the kingdom of Mali had expanded its reach to greater distances than even the Roman Empire at this time, King Abu, he just 
He was just bored. He was living in luxury. He had nothing better to do. And it's funny because there's such a modern description to this king. Like he's got like a real personality. He's not like other historical figures that you hear about. He's like low key a shit talker, right? And he even said apparently that the sermons of pious Muslims reminded him of singing crickets and it would put him to sleep. This king also had some other opinions about religion. He said that, um, you know, because he starts developing hostility and contempt for the ways of Muslims. And he said that uh, Muslims were terrified of real life. They were terrified of their senses and terrified of the primitive powers of sex, terrified of the sensations of a turbulent spirit. Bars. And I'm not saying just to for Muslims. I mean, it's, uh, I, I think, devout Christians and other religion, people that are really religious, they just don't seem to be, they seem to be very afraid of life. But I'm going off on a tangent. Let's keep going. So this king, he, he's got all this disdain for Arab culture. He starts spending less and less time doing his kingly Muslim inspired duties, right? He spends more time now with the scholars in Timbuktu, i.e. North Africans. Now, remember, North Africans are like these hippie, spiritual, pagan, wayfarer types. They're weirdos in the eyes of the Mali kingdom. And with their influence, the king starts being weird. He starts to entertain this idea that the world is round. And he hears of this land uh, of small scattered islands that had already been visited by North Africans or the Moors and Berbers. I know in North Africans, I'm using the same term for Mali people and North Africans, but... It, it's complicated. These North Africans, um, Moors, North Africa was actually considered like out of Egypt, closer to the Iberian Peninsula. And um, and these people are closer to, I, I believe, Central Africa. They're like more in the middle. Does that make any sense? I don't even know if I know what I'm talking about, but I can see the maps in my head. So, um, but others say, you know, about these small islands that the Moors are telling them, you know, people say that the lands are barren, but some of these moors are like, nah, there's just, there's more lands there than these scattered islands. These small islands are actually uh, satellites to much larger land masses. And now we know they're probably talking about Mexico and greater South America, where the Spanish would go 100 years later. All right, I don't know if you catch what I'm saying, just to recap a little bit. So this king, he's bored, he's defying his duties, he starts talking to outsiders, trying to figure out things about the world he wants to explore. And these people, these Africans are saying, hey, basically our ancestors, these Moors, these older Berbers and North Africans, we uh, we traveled to America, essentially. And not only that, they went across the Atlantic Ocean. And this is supposedly hundreds of years before this Mali king was even interested in it. And my, my main thought is like, okay, so how do, how do the Berbers and the Moors or these other North Africans know that they can get across the world in boats and shit, and then everybody else think that the world ends at the Atlantic Ocean with a black hole? I don't really understand it, but somehow, you know, there's very isolated pockets and groups of people in Africa, and they really don't seem to have a lot of communication with each other at this time. But besides the point, King Abu, he goes from having these weird philosophical like hey man there's probably some land out there bro he goes from that to building boats and eventually 200 master boats were built by him well not by him but by his servants and workers and then they built an additional 200 boat 200 boats just for supplies so that's a total of 400 boats and they were supplied with gold for trade 
enough dried meat and grain for two years. And then he tells his men, look, get on this boat and you, you fucking sail off. And I don't want to see you until you've reached the end of the ocean or until you've exhausted all your supplies, no food, no water left. And then you can come back. They sail off of the shores of Africa on the West Coast. I mean, they have to travel there. I don't think King Abu sees them off, but they're gone. And from here, he's playing the waiting game to hear something about these new lands. And during the time of these ships, these 400 ships, his absence, their journey, he is said to be restless, more restless than he ever was. It was said that he found no joy in his food, no joy in his wives, and no comfort in music. He yawned, he made impatient gestures when they were discussing local affairs that were really bit, like important and big. This dude, he's just impatient. He can't focus on anything else. Only these 400 boats that were sent out to sea, he's just waiting for him to come back. And he's worried, and rightfully so, because he actually hasn't even heard from or seen hide nor hair of these fucking boats. And then one night he has this dream, a nightmare really. He dreams that he sees a flock of blackbirds drifting across the sky. And suddenly, one of these birds at the tail end of the flock falls out of the sky and hits him directly on his forehead. And when this bird bounces off his head and hits the ground, it explodes to reveal that it was only filled with seawater and foam. And then the rest of the birds, they turn into clouds. So he tells these dreams to his spiritual advisors and interpreters, and they say that they cannot make a determination about what this dream was supposed to have meant. And one day, shortly after this dream, he can hear the king, can hear commotion in the royal court. So one of these men who had gone out to sea, basically, he came back. And it was the captain of these boats. Once the king, you know, hears about it, he goes out to greet them and he immediately begins, like, asking questions, of course. Like, what the fuck? What's going on? And this captain says that there was a strong river flowing into the sea at one point, And it created a current that carried the other boats away and that he had pulled back out of fear. And the king uttered, in like this really dramatic way, all is lost then. Ugh. The captain, he's like, well, don't be so sure, because I don't really know what happened to them. He says they didn't seem harmed. They were just drifted into the great beyond, you know. It's said that King Abu, he went crazy after this. He put all of the empire's resources to work on this massive new project that he had cooked up that he was going to get back out there and he was going to go himself to find these new lands. Shortly after that, he assembled his own fleet of sailors. He went down the Senegal River and west across the Atlantic and he was never seen again. His predecessor ended up being his younger brother and you might know him. His name is Mansa Musa and he's one of the richest kings in the history of the world. You can look him up. Google that shit. You know, that's the end of the story, by the way. Yes. It's a great story. No, thank you. I tell this story uh, not because I think this dude was the guy that brought African culture to the Americas, to Mexico in particular, or anywhere in South America, because obviously he didn't know anything about sailing across the Atlantic. This was an idea that was foreign and exciting to him. It wasn't he. He wasn't a Moorish person. He didn't come from the Moors or the Berbers, and that seems to be a history. Uh, a boat travel that's kind of a secret or something that is isolated to this group of people. And it's an idea that a lot of Westerners don't know about either, much like King Abu. Like, we think that 
there's no way that Africans were going around in ships and navigating the seas prior to the Spanish. But really, um, that's very, very untrue. Boats were a very big part of African, uh, Egyptian, whatever life in many parts of the continent of Africa. So in order to keep this conversation going, I think people have to understand that Africans and, and African adjacent people definitely were traveling around in boats quite a bit. Like I previously touched on a bit, there's this huge misconception that, you know, Europeans were the first group of people to technologically advance enough to build something that could sail across the sea prior to the 1500s, right? This is in part due to the fact that Europeans never encountered these massive uh, African boats comparable to the size of you know, the boats that the Spanish and other Europeans were using. It was all these little fishing boats everywhere, but nothing like special or considered seaworthy. You know, these things were that they were seeing out of Africa were made out of like really crude materials like papyrus and reeds and, and things like that. And this also helps support the narrative that, you know, a biased narrative, I might add, that if Europeans couldn't figure out something like a like boat travel, how could these barbarian butt naked ass Africans? And actually, Europeans didn't know what the fuck they were doing. According to Columbus himself, he says they were like, quote, blind men. And he also said, quote, although there were eight or nine pilots on board the two vessels, none of them knew where they were, end quote. And he also wrote this other quote uh, in his journal, Our ignorant pilots, when they lose sight of land for several days, know not where they are. Which is weird, because the latitudinal and longitudinal coordinates were used as early as 100 BC in China. But for some reason, they didn't become popular in Europe until like the 18th century. And that's, I mean, that's from the years 1701 to about 1800 by the way, so they're way, way behind. They shouldn't be getting lost on the ocean. Africans, on the other hand, were apparently navigating the Atlantic Ocean before the times of Christ. Do you hear what I'm saying? Before Jesus was around, before the Bible, or the European version of the Bible was a thing, Africans were sailing around in ships. They moved up the North Atlantic to Ireland, capturing part of that country in a very early period, Seamus McManus, in the story of the Irish race, records that he had encountered African sea rovers on Tory Island off the northwest coast of Ireland. So I just said Ireland. Why did I? Oh, I said Tory. Okay. <laughs> I'm like going into uh, autopilot uh, going through some of this information. I am fascinated, but I've read over it a million times. So uh, also on the East African coast, along the shores of the Indian Ocean, Africans were trading with India and China many centuries before Columbus, and this is documented. In the 13th century, it's recorded that the Swahili shipped an elephant to the court of the emperor of China as a gift. So that's crazy. And here's another like really weird thing. There was this boat called the Shops Boat, and it was, I don't know how to say it, Cheops, Chops, C-H-E-O-P-S, uh, and that's the name of a boat that was discovered in 1954 in the Cheops Pyramid of the same name. And this pyramid, it's in the Grand Canyon in Arizona. Do you hear what I'm saying? The oldest Egyptian style boat in the world was found in a pyramid in the Grand Canyon in the United States. This is insanity to me. 
It was built around 2600 BC. That's when it's dated to anyway. And this is not a small boat. It's 146 and a half feet long and almost 20 feet wide. Mainstream scientists have all these opinions about African boats, but there's this guy. His name was Thor Heyerdahl. He was someone with a very academic-like background in Egyptian boat design. He decided to run this experiment to challenge this narrative of Africans and the inability to like go places that were significant distances in their boats that they were building. He had organized the building of a papyrus boat, and he used the paintings and reliefs of boats um, from Egyptian burial chambers as his schematics, like his models. And with that, he bought a bunch of sun-dried papyrus leaves, 12 tons actually, and he uh, and they were 10 to 12 feet long. Don't know why that's important, but um, he got them from Lake Tana in Ethiopia, and he hired two experienced boat builders, an interpreter. This interpreter was from Lake Chad in Central Africa. So all of this stuff, he's buying native somewhat close to the, like like all the like this interpreter is even from the copper mines or near where the copper mines uh the ancient copper mines of medieval mali were so he's getting materials from places where africans would have been getting them as well in ancient times to build boats um Heyerdahl called this boat the ra one which is the word for sun in ancient egypt as well as parts of america and on all the islands of polynesia just an fyi this guy, he's really into Egyptian boats. It's like he's probably annoying to be around. He's probably, it's probably all he talks about. If you're willing to go this length <laughs> to uh, prove a point about African boats, like it's like, bro, you are obsessed. You got to fucking get a drink with this dude and talk about, you know, your family and catch up and stuff. And he's probably like, did you know that King Tutankhamun was like, all right, dog, god damn. To make a long story short, the first experiment failed. He launched this boat off of the coast of North Africa on the 25th of May in 1969. And then it got like within a few days distance of, you know, North America or the Americas period. And then it failed. So he built a smaller version of this boat called the Ra 2 creative, right? He made it across the Atlantic from Africa successfully. So basically what he's proven now is that in effect, you know, in theory, most Ancient Egyptian ships, even the oldest ones, could have probably crossed the Atlantic. Now that we know, like, clearly, I mean, I, I guess it's not, I can't say clearly. This is probably anecdotal to some, but without belaboring this point to death and talking about boats forever, the last, some of the last shit I'm going to say about it is, is that some people actually even believe that Spanish ships were inferior to ancient African ships because of their dependence on wind alone. And that it may actually even take longer to sail from Africa to the Americas in a European ship. Columbus wrote in a letter from Spain, or to Spain, from Jamaica on July 7th, 1503, quote, I was carried away by the current for many days, end quote. Small quote. <laughs> so um, it kind of cooperates the claims of wind-dependent ships being crappy. As he goes on more in another letter, he says the vessel of India, he really means South America, does not sail except for with the wind abaft. And this is done not because they're badly built or clumsy, but because the strong currents in these parts, together with the wind, make it impractical for them to sail with the bowline, for in one day they would lose as much as they might have made in seven. And this is their reason for not sailing except for in a favorable wind, and they will remain in port waiting for one 
seven, or eight months at a time. Nor is this particularly strange, for the same often occurs in Spain. Do you understand what the fuck he's saying here? He's saying that the ships were so dependent on wind, they would sit parked for one to eight months at a time, just waiting for a good wind. And then when they weren't sitting there, the wind could just blow them off course for several days by mistake. So, like, as an example, America Vespucci, one of uh, Columbus's kind of, he's, he's from that whole school in that era. He was also sailing around during that time. Vespucci, he journeyed from the Cape Verde Islands off the coast of West, West Africa to South America in 64 days. And Hans Linderman, a German doctor in an African dugout boat, he did it in 52 days. It was in 1955, but it was still an African dugout boat. As I mentioned before, the paintings on the inner walls of the pyramids, they even had images of pre-dynastic, pre-dynastic boats powered by oars and not sails. And these images can be found in the tomb of Pharaoh Menes at Abydos, and you can see the evolution of this Egyptian shipbuilding for three entire millennia. And then you start to see the Phoenicians tweaking it. Those are more like European folks. Uh, and they start tweaking these boat designs in 1194 BC. And from there it went to the Greeks. Then it went to the Romans. So all this boat travel shit was actually really, it was brand new to the Europeans. So they definitely wouldn't know what the fuck they were doing. Even you think about Columbus's first journey that I talked about in the first part of this episode. They even ran one ship into land trying to like just sail around. It was well documented that the medieval Mali people and others were accustomed to very long and treacherous journeys across deserts. And because of this experience they had traveling across areas where they were basically stranded, they learned to travel the sea as if it were also the desert, right? Because the sky, it had signposts in it already in the form of stars and, and uh, astral like uh, celestial bodies or whatever. And they would use these signposts in the skies to navigate. As a matter of fact, if you translate the word Sahara, you get the words the Sandy Sea. They had all sorts of nautical instruments and astronomical calculators at their disposal. So it only makes sense that they would use those same instruments, knowledge and tools like to travel to sea then, right? So there we go. That's all I got to say about boats. So now we're going to talk about what I've wanted to talk about this entire time, the inspiration kind of for this episode, uh, the Moors. According to Wikipedia and other sources, Moor is a term by early Christians used to describe the Muslim inhabitants of Maghreb, Spain, Portugal, Sicily, etc. But this term was originally applied to the indigenous Maghrebin Berbers and Northwest Africans, and again, Northwest Africa at this time is very active in world affairs. I'm starting to think I'm mixing up where Mali was and uh, the Maghrebian Berber territory. Uh, so I probably made some mistakes uh, earlier. So just disregard that. What I'm saying right now is the real shit. So the Berbers, they're a group of the people that the Moors seem to originate from. These people, they were an interesting people. They stood out compared to other African groups. They were a pagan group who developed their practices locally. You know, they didn't borrow from anyone else until much later when they started to borrow from the Egyptians and other cultures. 
they believed in their ancestors and various gods. They're a uh, they're polytheistic, right? They don't believe in monotheism or a single god, or maybe they do as well as other gods. But either way, these ancient practices that they have, they definitely show up later in other cultures that we still see today, like voodoo, um, any any of those slave trade uh, adjacent or descendants of those people. The Berber and pagan ways also show similarities to Celtic religions, and they run strong parallels with Native American practices, too. Many Native Americans mummified their dead in a similar fashion, and oftentimes with jewelry, ostrich shells, weapons with the dead, you know, buried with them. And in 1958, they found mummies that were a thousand years older than any Egyptian mummies. So apparently, they had an active culture that seems to predate Egypt, but also mimic it. I'm not really sure, but you know, I'm going off on a bit of a tangent. The Berbers, they considered the spirits of their ancestors to be gods, and they prayed to them and consulted them uh, on, you know, issues that they wanted, you know, they wanted answers to things. They did this to the point that they would go to the tombs of people that had deceased, their family and whatnot, and they would pray and they would even sleep in the tombs with deceased people. And when they woke up, they claimed to have had received the answers that they were looking for, um, you know, from in the form of dreams. And people who practiced this were often referred to as being a part of what's uh, called the cult of the dead. Herodotus, you know, that uh, Greek uh, historian slash philosopher, he's where a lot of... Um, a lot of Western record keeping has come from. Herodotus is kind of responsible for the, a lot of the narratives that we have here in America and history we have of life during these times and whatnot. Um, but he, he noted the same practice among the Anasimones. It's a, a nomadic Berber tribe associated with Libya. And they inhabited the deserts around Siwa, which is an urban oasis in between or in Egypt between the Katara Depression and the Great Sand Sea, I think, which is the Sahara. And um, he wrote, Herodotus wrote this about them. He says, they swear by the men among themselves who are reported to have been the most righteous and brave by these, I say, laying hands upon their tombs. And they divine by visiting the sepulchral, sepul sepulchral mounds of their ancestors and lying down to sleep upon them after having prayed. And whatsoever this man sees in his dream, he accepts. So basically what he's saying is, you know, this is just a depiction of the ancestor worship and this cult of the dead practice thing that's happening where, you know, if you have someone important in your life, a family member who died, if you wanted to get answers to them, it's the equivalent of like laying on top of their graves and sleeping on it after you've prayed and meditated. And then you would have prophetic dreams that would help you in your daily life. So that's a little bit of like how these Berbers are and what they were like prior to any of the stuff that happened with King Abu or, or any of that. This is way back in BC time. In the 7th and 8th centuries, there was suddenly this explosion of Arab influence in the area where the Berbers were from, in Northwest Africa. And at this time, it was partially under control of the Byzantines. 40,000 Arabs then entered North Africa and attempted to gain control of the area. Somehow, Berber rebellions were like pushing the Arabs back. But in 698, the Muslims took over with the help of the Romans, and the Romans were willing to help Arabs because they hated paganism, and the Berbers were pagans, so they were like willing to team up with anybody 
that was against that shit. And this same group of people, they're the ones most commonly called Moors, these people who were taken over. They had been there forever, then 40,000 Arabs show up, attack them, and then they're beating their asses, and then the Catholics get involved, the Romans. The Romans and, you know, the Roman-backed Arabs at this point, they're kind of running shit in uh, where, the, where the Moors are from at this time. But then the Berbers eventually pushed the Arabs out, finally, after so many years of control. And they started to form their own independent city-states, much like the Native Americans had. They had independent city-states the way they lived. But many of them, unfortunately, had already forgotten their way of life. They dropped paganism and they converted to Islam. So all these people that used to be pagan, they kind of lost their way during all these wars. So eventually, in the year 711, these people crossed the Strait of Gibraltar. It's a narrow strait that connects the Atlantic Ocean to the Mediterranean Sea, and it separates the Iberian Peninsula in Europe from, the, from Morocco in Africa. And once they crossed this you know, strait, they start seizing Visigothic kingdoms in Christian Hispaniola and or Spain. And from there, they expanded into Sicily, and they have civil wars against themselves for some reason in the process. And to be totally honest, I don't entirely understand what the fuck is going on in Southern Europe and the Iberian Peninsula and in, in Africa at all at this time. Like it, the whole shit is just a war zone. It's a dumpster fire. But what I do know is that there's like artifacts left behind from this time in a lot of European culture. Like there's paintings um, that were made during the European Renaissance that depict African Moors in places of nobility somehow. I'm looking at a painting right now. It's called The Portrait, uh, Portrait of an African Man, known as The Portrait of a Moor also. And it's a painting by the Dutch Renaissance painter Jean Masseret. Masseret. I don't know how to say his name. But uh, it seems to be dated between the years 1525 and 1530, which is right after the Europeans kind of got free from African and Arab rule in the 1490s. And I've added a, a photo of this, or I will add it to like a blog page or Instagram page. I really need to get on this shit, man, so that you guys can all see it. So the Moorish conquest started in 711, and they didn't leave Spain again until the 1490s. I hate to say it, but the first thing that popped into my mind when I thought of this shit is like, damn, it kind of sounds like a lot of the things that the Spanish went on to do in the Americas and other places later. Like they rolled up onto other people's land, converted them to Islam by force, and then occupied positions of leadership in their countries. And, you know, um, it's really, I hate to say it, I really do. But, you know, nowadays, you know, I've had plenty of conversations with black people, even white people, that'll say shit like, you know, the white man fucked up this world and and did all this horrible shit. Why did the white man feel the need to go places and do the shit that they they had done to people, colonize them and take away their land and all this shit? And um, I think that idea exists amongst oppressed people. Uh, it kind of helps us feel better and point you know our frustrations about the way the world is at somebody. Somebody's responsible. And I'm not saying that the Spanish aren't horrible, but you know, I think then we we kind of believe the conditioning in a way that like our ancestors weren't capable of doing crazy shit like colonizing and, and destroying things. 
but it's really just, I feel like that's a form of us believing that we're not shit. When you look at the history, we went places and fucked some shit up like pretty well. Uh, we took over a lot of people, converted them to other belief systems. There's people in, you know, the fighter Khabib Nurmagomedov from the UFC, um, but he's Islam. He's Muslim. Like he does all the Muslim things, but he's a white dude. And it's like he lives in one. He comes from one of those like Middle Easternish. uh what do they call that? Uh, Eurasian places where they still believe in Islam today because of what the Berbers and the Arabs and the Moors had done. And I think the narrative is like it's impossible. Black people just don't do that kind of shit. We don't go places and convert people and fuck them up. And um, we didn't do it alone necessarily in Spain and shit. We were with the with the Arabs. But even King Abu, you know, he was in the process of capturing another city. 300 miles, you know, away from Timbuktu. So it wasn't his territory. They were warring with these people and fighting with them and they just couldn't take it over. I think it's just that we're not living as black people in a position that where we can do that shit to people today. But I, I definitely think that we would. I think whoever has power, you know, will use it. And I don't think that, uh, you know, Europeans felt any differently than we do when they're being conquested, you know what I'm saying? And as a matter of fact, there's a European scholar who was sympathetic to the Spaniards, and he remembered the conquest of the Moors in this way. The reins of their horses, the Moors, were as fire. Their faces were black as pitch, and their eyes shone like burning candles. And this is like the Renaissance, like the medieval way of saying eyes and teeth, eyes and teeth. Their horses were swift as leopards, and the riders fiercer than a wolf in a sheepfold at night. The noble Goths, which are German rulers of Spain, whom Roderick, whoever that is, belonged to, they were broken in an hour, quicker than the tongue can tell. Oh, luckless Spain, end quote. You'll be like, well, that's contrary, because, you know, the presence of the Moors drastically elevated the standards of living in Europe. Some even posture to say that it's even responsible for the Renaissance. The Moors, they changed math, science, hygiene drastically. And they changed so much more wherever they went. For instance, education was universal in Moorish Spain. It was available to everybody. But in Christian Europe, 99% of the population was illiterate. And even kings couldn't read or write. At that time, Europe had only two universities, and the Moors had 17. These were located in Almeria, Cordova, Granada, which was where the Moorish fortress was, and that's where King and Queen Isabel won the fight against the Moors, the final battle. A place called Jeune, Malaga, Seville, and Toledo. Uh, it's also said that the Moors introduced the earliest versions of several instruments, including the lute, the guitar, the kithara, or kithara and the lyre. There was also a Moor named Ziryab. He was a famous singer, oud player, composer, poet, and teacher who lived and worked in present-day Iraq, northern Africa, and Andalusia of the medieval Islamic period. And he also changed the style of eating by breaking meals into separate courses, beginning with soup and ending with desserts. Like, God damn, this nigga is classy as fuck. It doesn't sound like a hostile takeover to me. The Moors also introduced many new crops, including the orange, lemon, peach, apricot, fig, sugarcane, dates, ginger, and pomegranate, as well as saffron, cotton, silk, 
and rice, which remain some of Spain's main exports today or in their main products. What they have before that? Spanish rice? No, they didn't even have Spanish rice because rice came from China, went to Africa, or I can't tell who had it first, Africa and China. They seem to be like the top dogs in the world. Um, but regardless, it didn't fucking come from Spain. So they didn't even have it until foreigners showed up. The Moors also brought the compass from China to Europe. And at its height, Cordoba, the heart of Moorish territory in Spain, it was the most modern city in Europe. The streets were well paved with raised sidewalks for pedestrians. During the night, 10 miles of streets were well illuminated by street lamps. This was hundreds of years before there was even a paved street in Paris or a street lamp in London. Cordova had 900 public baths, and it's said that a poor Moor would go without bread rather than soap. And a lot of this happened while Europe was, you know, suffering. There was the Dark Ages, the bubonic plague, you know, even though the plague didn't last as long as some people might think. Some people might think of it as like something that happened over the span of 5, 10, 20 years, but it was actually like a year and a half or something. But even so, during this time, the Moors were doing their thing, man. They were thriving. It was their golden age. So were the Moors really comparable, you know, to the Spanish, Portuguese, Romans, British? I don't know. I mean, I don't hear a lot of tales about it outwardly coming out, but I think it's just because people of African descent aren't really the top dogs anymore, and it's kind of fucked up to punch down, you know what I mean, and be like, oh, those niggas who used to be slaves, don't feel sorry for them. They fucked my great-great-great-great-grandparents <laughs> up and and maybe fucked them too. I don't even know. Um. But it doesn't mean that that shit didn't happen, like the torture and all that stuff. Because are there any really, like, are there any colonizations that happen entirely peacefully? Like, is what I'm doing right now, you know, saying all the great things that the Moors brought to Europe, how they sparked the Renaissance and all this shit, is that kind of not the same thing as saying, hey, Europeans might have destroyed native civilizations and, like, fucked everybody up, enslaved a bunch of people, but hey... You wouldn't even be able to listen to this podcast right now if we didn't invent Apple iPhones over here and what you know what I mean? So and now actually when I think about it, I have heard stories of like rape and other violent acts during colonizations, like with Sicily in Italy. Like they you know, they apparently did so much rape there in Italy in like I believe the thirteen hundreds, there was like the whole part of Sicily was like Italians, like northern Italians don't even like Sicily, they consider them to be like niggas, basically, because a lot of them do have African descent, and they're darker and shit like that. So I think I'm a little bit biased, but that's not really the whole point of what I was trying to say about the Moors in the first place. The Moors, clearly, there's a lot of evidence of them traveling around the globe, well, not the globe, but traveling around to a lot of places. Is it really that hard to think that these same people who believed in paganism and believed in you know, the culture of the dead and whatnot, is it hard to believe that somehow some of these people didn't break away, kind of journey or venture off away from Africa, get into boats and go somewhere else? Is it possible that these same traveling people, these nomads, these pagan wayfarers, is it possible that they somehow made their way to the Americas? So now that we kind of talked about this, I kind of want to get into these conspiracies because we really don't know what happened up to this point. We're kind of like, okay, so there did exist people that in Africa that were building boats, right? There were kings and people before these kings who were making competent boats that allegedly could travel other places. All of these grains, fruits, and other things somehow ended up in these other continents. Like, 
America, some of the things that made Christopher Columbus believe that there were Africans around in the first place is they found all these spear tips and uh, plants and, and cotton handkerchiefs and things that shouldn't have belonged in the American continent. Not to, not to mention there was uh, an African, you know, the oldest Egyptian ship was found in Arizona. So it's like there's a gap to be bridged somewhere. There's like a, an absolute storyline and narrative, and we really don't know what it is. But I do have some conspiracies on based off things that people believe biblical references and whatnot so let's go ahead it's like stifling a burp the whole time let's go ahead and get into some of these uh conspiracies to try to help bridge the gap so um okay conspiracy time let's get into it this is like a fun part for me so we talked about all these like African artifacts, pyramids, spears, plants, handkerchiefs, all this shit, statues that look like Negroes in the faces, you know, the Olmecs and all this stuff. How did all this shit get from North Africa to South America, allegedly? Like, what is this? What is the thing that they're trying to hide? If there is anything, what is what's missing to this piece of the puzzle? The author of the book that I based this episode on, Ivan Van Sardema, and other scholars describe these artifacts as being of Hamitic in origin. What does that mean? You hear it in the Bible, the Hamites, the Canaanites, the whateverites. Hamites is actually the name formerly used for some North and Horn African peoples in the context of a now outdated model of dividing humanity into different races. This is a, an artifact. This is a a monument that we toppled over, right? Because it might be the language that has shifted that might lead us to where we're actually going. And in order to understand more, let's dip into documents that use these these terms and try to reverse engineer things a bit. So this uh, this term, by the way, was originally developed by Europeans who were in support of colonialism and slavery. So it's a little weird, but in an ancient context and in an and in medieval times, the Horn of Africa was referred to as Bilad el Barbar, which is the land of Berbers. And this is where we start to have some fun with this whole context and the term Hamitic and how it relates to the discussion that I've been having the last, you know, episode in, a, in, in three quarters. So to say it another way, Hamitic people are of North African origin. This is where most of the story has taken place today. Approximately after 2497 BC, this happens in the Bible. Genesis chapter 9, verse 18. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. It's after the great flood, by the way, and the waters have receded enough to where human life can start anew. And this is where the story of Noah and his children take place. And here's what they start to do. Chapter 9, verse 20, Noah began to be a man of the soil. So he planted a vineyard. So that's nice. Like he's starting shit up. He's, he's, got, he's growing some grapes. But then, of course, something happens because biblical stories often end in uh, horror, especially Old Testament ones. Verse 21 of the same chapter, he drank of the wine, Noah, and he became drunk. And he laid uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers who were outside. 
So from my understanding so far, Noah's got a vineyard. He's growing stuff. He's using the stuff that he grows to make wine. He drinks this wine. He gets drunk, gets naked for some reason, and then he passes out butt naked in his room, I assume. And then after he passes out, his son Ham finds him, and then he's like to his brothers, hey, dad's drunk as fuck, naked in another room, passed out. Isn't that hilarious? You know, or he's on some weird shit like, hey, guys, wouldn't it be neat if I batted his junk around a little bit? <laughs> I'm not entirely sure, but I do know what happens next. This is chapter uh, or verse 23 of the same chapter. Then Sham, Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both of their shoulders, walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father so that their faces were turned around and they did not see their father's nakedness. So it's a little dramatic, you know, like they're terrified of seeing their own dad naked. Like they literally do the most to make sure that they don't. But, um, and they, by tossing a blanket over him, like he's some wild bird that got loose in their house. So then it goes zero to 100 when Noah wakes up. Verse 24, Noah wakes up from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him. And he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. So, uh, okay, that's the most extreme thing ever. He's really upset about all this. And if you don't catch what's going on, he's not cursing Ham because Ham isn't Canaan, but his children are the Canaanites. And he's just cursed all of his grandkids. (laughs) So, uh, verse 26, he also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. And then he says, may God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant as well. So he's basically saying, because you saw me naked or did some weird shit to me while I was passed out, I'm going to curse your entire bloodline for generations. And they're going to have to be slaves to your two brothers offspring. So you probably already figured this out that the Hamites and the Canaanites are supposed to be the dark races of people, black people in particular. And each of Noah's children allegedly goes on to make up different races of people. And these verses and others are in part said to be the justification for the transatlantic slave trade. But here's a little bit more on that. The literal name Shem means fame. Shem apparently fathered the Semitic people, which include the Jews. Likewise, Japheth means may he have space. So Shem and Japheth are cool. But when it comes to Ham, Ham means hot or sunburnt. And his sons were cursed by Noah. And they were called the Canaanites or the Cushites, the Egyptians, and the, the Put, Putians, people from Put. And some would say that sunburnt or hot would obviously mean that they're dark-skinned. They're the darker races of people. And their modern names are Egyptians, Ethiopians, Libyans, and people that resided in what is the biblical Israel. Um, not the Israel that we know of today because that wasn't established until sometime in the 1940s. These parts of the Bible and others probably did some sort of psychological heavy lifting for the colonists when they were like taking over Africans and trying to enslave them. Um, Because, you know, what way would you make someone more subservient than to tell them that you're God, right? And that the only way that they can prosper and be saved is to pray to you and your God, essentially. So it does seem a little bit funny, though, that the same people who were cursed by Noah are also from the same place as the Berbers and the Moors, right? They're from North Africa. They're Hamites. People from North Africa are the Horn of Africa. Again, though, I think about the history. The Europeans have been fighting the Moors for a long time, so it's logical to think that they would 
have used some prejudice against them for being attacked for so long. Um, and they, they wanted to find a way to justify, justify colonizing them. There's also passages in the Bible that carry almost the exact opposite theory about ancient, you know, Africans, ancient America and whatnot. Some people think that instead of being a cursed group of people, uh, that Africans, Native Americans, Haitians, Cubans, Puerto Ricans, Mexicans, Dominicans, other Latinos are actually part of God's chosen people. They're the true lost tribes of Israel. They believe that the transatlantic slave trade was predicted in Deuteronomy. They also believe that the Torah is the supreme authority on matters of faith. And the Torah is basically the first five books of the Hebrew Bible, which are Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. They also believe that the Israelites and those whom were referred to as Negroes or are referred to as Negroes Native Americans, Hispanics, etc. are all the same people. That the descendants of the transatlantic slave trade were descendants of people who fled some sort of Roman persecution in 70 AD. And they used the reference um, from Babylon to Timbuktu, which states that a million Israelites fled from Africa during the Roman persecutions. A million, apparently. And they think that um, some of them came to America and shipped somehow. That the people that we know as Native Americans and Indians or whatever were exiled, were exiled by the Assyrian king Salmanasar in 722 um, in ships. Like they just put them on ships and they're like, get the fuck out of here. And they used the pyramids built by the Aztecs to support those assertions. Remember I told you that nobody knew why the fuck the pyramids in America looked the way they did, that they were Babylonian, they were those step design. Well, they would say that this is kind of a reason as to why, that these people um, actually did come from Africa. They came from that Horn of Africa area, and they were kicked out for some reason. Even some people of Ethiopia, they claim to be the descendants of the lost tribes of Israel, and this is upheld by a rabbinic speaker, Ovidiah Yosef, actually. And I tried to research who the 12 tribes descendants were in particular, but there's only biblical references to go by, but scholars seem to not really know at all with, and with who the 12 tribes are in the first place. Um, biblical Israel is made up of many different groups of people who embraced the same faith, so it doesn't necessarily mean Jewish people are one relative group of people. It's, it's Jewish is more of a faith, not an ethnicity at this time. Charles Upton relates the serpent Haitian voodoo god Danbala as a derivative a character from a heterodox form of Ethiopian Judaism that predates like Christianity, despite Africans having derived from West Africa and not Ethiopia. So you see what's saying here is that like people who believe in voodoo and stuff like this in Haiti and, and Cuba and whatnot, they have gods that come from Ethiopia, but if they're slaves, they came from West Africa. So how the hell would they even have any of those beliefs? Even Kendrick Lamar and his cousin Duckworth seem to operate from this angle too. In Kendrick's album, it's called Damn, we hear multiple references to Deuteronomy 28. And this chapter actually contains verses that um, indicate the Jews and Africans that we're talking about have a lot of in common and they may be one in the same. Like here's uh, Deuteronomy verse 28. The Lord will strike you with madness and blindness and confusion of heart. And you shall grope at noonday as a blind man gropes in the darkness. 
and you shall not prosper in your ways, and you shall only be oppressed and plundered continually, and no one will save you. Bleak, goddamn, but okay. So you can already see how someone could compare, could compare that to um, slavery, but there's more, there's more. You shall betroth a wife, but another man shall lie with her. You shall build a house, but you shall not dwell in it. You shall plant a vineyard, but shall not gather its grapes. Sounds like, again, slavery, the horrors of it, colonizing, masters taking black women as sexual objects, and then also slaves building everything here in America and then not being able to enjoy really any of it. There's no credit. There's no uh, 40 acres and a mule. Nobody gives a shit. Your sons and your daughters shall be given to another people, and your eyes shall look and fail without longing for them all day long. And there shall be no strength in your hand, so you shall be driven mad because of the sight which your eyes see. You'll miss your kids so bad, you'll just like never get over it. You'll lose your children. You have to sell them off to people. Again, slavery. Uh, another verse, the alien who is among you shall rise higher and higher above you, and you shall become down lower and lower. He shall lend to you, but you shall not lend to him, and he shall be the head, and you shall be the tail. Again, marginalization that happens amongst descendants of so-called slaves and other oppressed groups in America. Like, you don't see niggas, you know, quote-unquote, meaning natives, Latinos, Africans, etc., lending out money to white people. There's no banks. We have no real stake in those institutions, and we have not collectively gained footholds in big money industries like that the way Europeans have. Again, another verse, Therefore you shall serve your enemies, whom the Lord will send against you, in hunger, in thirst, in nakedness, and in need of everything. And he will put a yoke of iron on your neck until he has destroyed you. And the Lord will bring a nation against you from afar, from the end of the earth, as swift as the eagle flies. A na Eagle, right? America? Anyway, a nation whose language you will not understand, a nation of fierce countenance, which does not respect the elderly, nor show favor to the young. Come on, man. Think about America, dude. This is basically just saying America. And it's no surprise that a lot of like Hebrew, Hebrew Israelites and a lot of other groups like them believe that the scriptures in Deuteronomy directly outline the suffering of black people in America and in the world. If you look at the whole thing after all the historical context leading up to this theory, you know, the pyramids that existed in America, the beliefs that were here, the culture in general, it's it's really interesting. And then you take into account like real facts like this, like from the late 1600s to the 1800s, there seemed to be a slow transition in language around the way that the United States classified Negroes, Native Americans, and black people, because these were all three very non-existent things at one time like it's a and i'll try to sum it up because it's kind of a long history but basically in the infancy of america colonists called the native americans and black people negroes interchangeably like they there was no difference really and they did this because there were so many africans who had existed alongside native tribes during slavery and some say that this isn't a result of slavery though but because africans were they were already here for thousands of years with Native Americans prior to all this. And there's all these records and laws throughout the years that show efforts in changing the definition of uh, Negroes and Natives, like, legally. Here's uh, a little bit of that. 
Virginia tax rolls and census records from the 1780s to the 1850s have numerous examples of Indian tribal identity changing classifications from free people of color to mulattoes. You know, these are the different names that they had. And in fact, the practice was almost universal. Like some people were classified as free Negroes, some people, which was FB and FN in tax records, or as B, simply, uh, as in which meant for black in some tax records. And then in certain counties, such as Southampton County, in 1830, in other parts of Delaware, virtually all free non-white people were f- classified as FN, free Negroes, although it was under the free people of color column. And these lists included people from the Nanticoke tribe and other tribal groups. And in 1860, all persons, finally, of African descent who had or African ancestry who had been slaves were granted by treaty citizenship in the five civilized tribes of Native American territories. And that was, you know, the Cherokee, the Chocksaw, the Chickasaw, Chickasee. Basically, I talked about them in another episode. Even though these people were considered natives and able to live with them, the general trend was to enroll the more visibly part African people as as free freedmen, uh, citizens, and to restrict their tribal status. So basically, if you looked a little bit African, because there was no DNA test, if you just looked too African, you weren't allowed to be a Native American. You had to be a free man. And you didn't get any like territories, any land, nothing like that. And when lands were allotted in the 1880s and the early 1900s, most African-looking people were not allowed to assert American ancestry and were therefore denied future rights as Indians. Crazy, right? Even crazier. Some people even believe that America was actually the true old world, where ancient Egypt existed, where Jesus lived and died. And it's the basis for the idea of a book, of the Book of Mormon. The Book of Moor Man, and it's a religious text, if you don't know, that was written by a man that claims to have been visited by an angel that told him where to find Egyptian artifacts and helped him translate the Book of Mormon. So what the fuck? The, Joseph Smith, the guy who wrote the Book of Mormon, he was, you know, not the greatest of guy. He was considered a con man. I don't really believe in Mormonism, but the, the story of Mormonism is basically of this white guy who's a colonizer finding Egyptian artifacts and it helping him write a religious scripture. And these artifacts are being found in America. It's like Delaware or some shit. So I always thought of the Mormon origin story as bullshit, but in this conversation and context, it makes me think. Another thing that's interesting to note is that the reason why God apparently cursed people in Deuteronomy in the first place was because these people had you know, though they were the chosen people, they were cursed because they had stopped worshiping God in the way that they had learned, right? They strayed away from the will of God, the correct will of God. And it takes me back to, again, the Moors and Berbers that were in North Africa before the Arabs showed up. They developed their culture autonomously. They didn't borrow from anyone. They made their stuff, their belief systems locally. And then they started to take away from Egyptian faiths. They started worshiping new gods once foreigners started to come to their lands and then what happened slavery i believe there's truth in a lot of these stories somewhere a lot of these ideas but it's a mystery really it's like trying to put together a puzzle that you know is really difficult and also some of the pieces are missing and then some of the pieces are fake 
But I do believe that Africans did come to America before Columbus and cohabitated with the Native Americans whom were actually Asian, if you remember. Some believe America was an empire called a Mexum, a nation made up of treaties between Moroccan Moors, Chinese, and Native Americans. And it's fascinating. Um, and when I learn more, maybe I'll have more insight on it all. But for now, it's kind of a, uh, a mystery. It brings us right back to where we started. And I hope everybody was able to like take something away from this. But really what I took away from it uh, at a whole was look at how much we lost due to the manipulation of history by the winners. The statues that we're tearing down now for uh, the sake of political correctness and righteousness and whatnot, those, those statues themselves were originally put there to wipe some sort of history away before it. And it was the history that I'm talking about. But there's so many pieces, we can't really put them together anymore. We lost so much time. And now we seem to be entering a new wave of that practice. Now we're tearing down the monuments that we've all grown to understand and know whether they're right or not. So soon, we might not even remember slavery ever happened. America's a crime scene, and we've been walking all over the evidence the entire time. And before I go, I don't want this to seem like, a oh, white people or black people are, are bad or, or anybody deserves what's going on. This isn't really a conversation about that. This is it, It's just definitely not a discussion about who's right or wrong, right? Because another thing that I gathered from this history and trying to learn it all was that it seems like whoever had the money, knowledge, and access to new lands and resources, they would they would do what they had to do to to get things that they wanted. And sometimes that was even in a confrontational manner. And like in some twisted way, I don't think the intentions are ever bad to do the things that humans do, even if they're terrible. Like, does anyone in the world really ever do anything because they think it's bad for humanity? Like, of course, there's some people that just do things knowingly to cause destruction, but I do believe that deep down, even seemingly bad people and the things that they do are an attempt to do good, even if it is for selfish reasons, you know? And it goes from the macro to the micro. Both governments and institutions and businesses and individuals operate in this same manner by default. Like, you think about a, a like a big company, for instance, uh, Foxconn Technologies Group, right? They're a Taiwanese electronics contract and manufacturing company they basically produce some of the devices that we use every day in 2010 it was the world's largest company of its kind revenue wise and it's also the largest private employer in mainland china and worldwide they make devices for companies all over the world from phones to gaming systems and some of their clients are apple microsoft nintendo and whoever makes blackberry phones like I don't even, who makes black, who the fuck buys a black bear anymore? Is that still a thing? The company's a little controversial because it's done some like really shady shit, right? They, uh, this company was so fucked up that, um, you know, they had people, Chinese mainland people working there and they're getting abused by Taiwanese coworkers. They're, uh, getting harassed. They're not, they're working ungodly overtime. It's like a sweatshop essentially. They had to put suicide nets outside of these people's windows and these buildings where they were living, which are basically like dormitories. These people suffered a lot so that we could like buy shit. We could buy Apple iPhones and all this stuff. And if you own an iPhone 10, 
in November 2017-ish, the Financial Times had reported that there were several students working 11-hour days at this particular plant that produced these phones. And, you know, kids weren't even supposed to be working so many hours per week. They use rejected parts for iPhones in 2019. And what's like, what's the point I'm trying to make here? For me, it's easy to look at Foxconn and even Apple and say that they're the evil companies. They're fucking evil. And for the record, they kind of are. But by proxy, eh, am I evil too? Apple and iPhone users and shit like this? Like I wrote and researched this episode on an Apple iMac computer. My second iMac, actually. I bought my first one in 2007 or 08 during the first time that there was like reported abuse at the Foxconn facilities. And then I found out about all this crap in 2013 and I bought my new iMac like two months ago. I work at a company that makes a lot of money, you know, every year and they buy all sorts of Mac shit. I use a MacBook Pro at my office and it went bad. So they just got me a brand new one. All my coworkers that I, you know, around in my vicinity use MacBooks. Like we live in an era of social justice and hashtags and stuff to try to bring light to these things that are going on. But if someone told them that the phone that they're tweeting those enraged hashtags from were part of the problem that you're you're buying and supporting these things, do you think that the movements would be so popular? Not because people would stop buying the devices and stop tweeting about this shit, but do you think people would be willing to put themselves on blast if the whole focal point of the argument was don't support these companies because they fuck people up. Coltan, right, is a very important mineral and it's needed to make cell phones and other devices. It, it helps them function, but it's also a conflict mineral. It's mined in the Great Lakes region of Africa, again, Africa, baby, mainly in the Congo, and that's where 30% of the world's supply of coltan comes from. And coltan is the new blood diamonds. It's supplied and controlled by gangsters and fucking warlords. CBC reported men, women, and children being forced at gunpoint to mine coltan, which is exported at $56 a pound. That's high profit. Using picks and shovels and toiling for 12 hours a day, miners used 19th century techniques, you know, mining by hand. And 30% of these workers are school children. And after this coltan is mined, it's then, it's then relabeled and sent to legitimate smelters, then it's processed and made into capacitors and sold to electronics companies like Apple, Samsung, IBM, Dell, Cisco, HP, and a lot of other companies. So it seems like to argue over the social logistics of everything, like black people did this, white people did that, these people are fucked up. It's just an illusion. Because from the Moors to the Romans, from Apple computers to Nike or whoever, we're all really just standing around and watching and helping the machine destroy our humanity while we're arguing over who's responsible. I don't hate mainland Chinese people, but I do something slightly hateful and unethical when I purchase products that they're abused to produce or same thing with my own people. You know, I got caught up in the Black Lives Matter stuff, but it's like if Black Lives Matter, I wouldn't even be using these devices that were probably built off of the blood of kids. From world perspective, we're the overlords now here in America, a pseudo group of oppressors of Africans and Asians, ironically, all over the world. And we're tweeting about it and taking selfies with their very instruments of enslavement. But does it feel that way? 
Is it really just as simple as buying a phone and monetarily supporting something to also be a colonizer, to also be a monster, to also practice European things? It's really, we all need to remember the history. We all need to remember who's the good guy and who's the bad guy and and kind of figure out what things to support and what not to support, really, at the end of the day. It's not about black and white. It's about power. And remembering where we come from. And that's it. End of the episode. What do you think? Let me know via email at dean at deanxmartian.com or go to deanxmartian.com or martianartsllc.com and fill out the form on the contact page. And I'm never doing a long ass episode like this again. It took me forever. All right.